A quick warning. The following episode contains some depictions of violence and the sound of gunshots. Exterior, Playland at the Beach, Night. A younger Billy, Crazy Six, and Eugene are walking a young Chinese rival gang leader along the oceanfront. The rival gang leader, Lenny Mock, is in tears, pleading for his life. Billy, why? Please don't kill me. We were friends at one time. Out of everything in my Uncle Galen's screenplay, the one he claimed was based on real events, this is the scene I tried the hardest not to think about. It's one of two flashbacks in the script. There's that scene of the funeral for Billy's father with a dime, which, after talking to my aunts, I confirmed was real. But then there's this. Crazy Six pushes him into the sand. Eugene puts a pistol to the boy's head. Don't make another sound. Billy looks at Lenny. Lenny, scared to death, pleads with his eyes, like a lamb about to be slaughtered. Billy's eyes begin to moisten. Billy, ah! I've been pretty sure Billy is based on my Uncle Galen. And in this scene, a gang leader named Crazy Six forces Billy to kill his childhood friend. It's too late, Lenny. Please, please don't, don't kill me, Billy. Please don't kill me. Two shots ring out, muffled by the roar of the ocean and the openness of the beach. The backwash of an incoming wave soaks his childhood friend's body. As much as I tried to tell myself, I'm sure the scene is just fiction. The obvious question always lingered. Did my uncle kill someone? It seemed incomprehensible. When I think of my Uncle Galen, I think of when I was 22, and he was my 59-year-old roommate. I lived with him for a couple months in 2011. I crashed in the second bedroom of his North Hollywood apartment while I looked for my first job at a college. I didn't know him well. We kept it pretty surface level. And I don't know what the daily life of a former gangster would look like, but nothing about him said, I'm haunted by my past. Uncle Galen stuck to his routines. Like, he wore the same outfit every day, a black or white sleeveless cotton shirt with light wash blue jeans. Every morning, he'd leave peanuts out on his balcony for his favorite squirrel. Then he'd ask if I wanted to go to the donut shop, despite the fact he had diabetes, He'd have this innocent look on his face, like he was getting away with something naughty. My family used a Cantonese phrase to describe Galen, Sachyan. It means sassy, opinionated, someone trying to act big. You know, attitude, swag. The only Sachyan I saw in him was when he used to tell me every hot restaurant in LA was overrated. At night, we watched Big Brother. He thought it was a great work of television. We ate dinner on the couch. I once made a cheese plate, and he told me the salami was going to give me cancer. So I got two options here. Either my uncle was a Big Brother fanboy who thought it was racy to eat a donut, or if this screenplay is real, he's some secret murderer, and this whole time our family had no idea. 
I didn't know what to make of that murder scene. I wished I could just pretend it wasn't in my uncle's script. But I knew that if I wanted to understand who he really was, I had to understand this scene. I'm Maya Lynn Sugarman. This is Magnificent Jerk, the true story of a fake story about a real life. Episode 2, Sachin. resemble a goddaughter we have. Really? I went to my aunt's to see if the name Lenny rang a bell. That's Billy's childhood friend in the script. They weren't sure, but they said if I wanted to talk to Galen's childhood best friend, that guy was very much alive, and he still lived nearby. So how long was your mom with your dad? Um, I think, let's see. I was kind of nervous before meeting up with Edmund Hong. But there was something about him that seemed calming. He's tall and solid, like a redwood tree. He asked if I wanted to take a drive around Oakland and see the places where he and Galen used to hang out. This is a creek where we used to play around. Oh, wow. We used to go through the tunnels and stuff. Oh, and it weaves over here. Right. But this was a great place for children to grow up. You know, back then it was really safe. They met in elementary school. Edmund says they bonded because there weren't that many Asian kids. Hong Kong or China, you know. From there, my uncle just started showing up at his house. It's like Galen just decided, you and me, we're friends now. I played percussions, and I think Galen played flute. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Edmund told me they used to cruise all around Oakland, sharing one bicycle. Even though he was bigger, Galen was stronger. So Edmund steered while Galen pedaled. Here's where Galen introduced me to smoking marijuana. Wow, really? On the weekends, they took the bus to San Francisco. He said they went to this amusement park that's not around anymore, called Playland at the Beach. The place where 30 years later, Galen set that murder scene in his screenplay. He was like my big brother. Yeah, it's kind of like Galen took me under his wing. Yeah. Yeah, that changed. That changed, he said. When I first reached out to Edmund, I wasn't sure he'd talk with me. Even though he's Galen's oldest friend, he wasn't comfortable speaking at his memorial. Whatever happened between them seemed like it's still there. We headed back to Edmund's house, the same one he grew up in around the corner from where my family lived. We started talking about when they got to high school. Edmund and Galen hung out at a new spot, one they never went to as kids, a dingy pool hall in Oakland Chinatown. Edmund remembered it was dark inside, with a lot of cigarette smoke. I imagined teenage Chinese boys with slicked back hair, leaning over the pool tables with this cool guy ease in deep concentration. Edmund said it was a rough crowd, mostly guys from Hong Kong who picked fights and chain smoked. Galen looked up to them and they started letting him hang around. They taught him Cantonese curse words and drove around Oakland looking for trouble, like this bowling alley uptown called Broadway Bowl, where Galen would force Edmund into situations he didn't want to be in. Actually, I was good fighter. I was a good fighter that chose not to fight. 
unless I was put in that position. And because I was bigger and stuff, he'd start these fights that I was the person to have to do the fighting. Edmund said Galen would walk up to a stranger and start some shit, telling them that Edmund was going to kick their ass. He was an instigator. And, uh, you know, I didn't like that at all. That's when Edmund told me. The guys they'd been hanging out with, they weren't just a bunch of pool sharks who cursed. They were a gang. Well, he was initiated into this gang, and it's a verbal thing, more of a promise to abide by the rules. In my uncle's screenplay, Billy is a former gang member. And my aunts had mentioned a gang, but I didn't realize how much it started to take over Galen's life. Whatever Galen got into, he got into like 110%. Edmund said it was called the Soy Sing Boys. It turns out they were the biggest gang in Oakland Chinatown. And by the time my uncle joined, a bloody gang war was about to go down. When I started talking to people about my uncle's gang, the Soy Sing Boys, they told me there was this whole history I needed to understand first. In the late 60s and early 70s, a bunch of Chinese gangs popped up in the Bay Area. At the time, San Francisco Chinatown was one of the densest neighborhoods in America. It was the only neighborhood Chinese families could reliably live in. Most white homeowners in the city refused to sell to Asian people. A lot of the kids couldn't speak English. They had trouble in school and trouble getting jobs. Chinatown's unemployment rate was twice as high as the rest of the city. There was tuberculosis, and the only clinic was at a housing project inside the laundry room. Amid these conditions, a group of young men and boys started to organize. First, it was sort of an activist group, and then they got more violent. They were called the Wa Ching, and one of their most outspoken leaders was a young immigrant who went by the nickname Tom Tom. We're thinking about these things. Rich guys that own restaurants and they're hiring bus boys and they're paying us 65 cents per hour and 50 cents per hour. Tom Tom got interviewed for a bunch of different articles I found from that time. He was featured in a 12 page story for Esquire by the legendary journalist Tom Wolfe. There aren't any recordings that I know of. But when I read his quotes, I imagine Tom Tom sounded something like this. All we want is money and girls and to be with our friends. Tom Tom wore a brown leather jacket and drank scotch. In the Esquire article, he'd just come back from a trip to Disneyland and wore pins of Goofy and Tinkerbell. Tom Wolf described him as this happy-go-lucky fellow. But Tom Tom had a darker side too. He carried a hatchet. They don't slice but they hurt plenty. Tom Tom would brag about the kinds of things him and his boys would pull off. Like, they threw fireworks at school administrators, set their cars on fire. They stabbed a principal. You split my head open, I get up, keep fighting. But you'd better not ever be alone again. Because we find you, two, three, four, five of us, walk up to you on the street, one here, one here, one over here, not even look at you, not say a word, just rip you off. You have to kill us to stop us. 
we go to bars and um, I probably went drinking with them, I don't know, seven to 10 times over the years. And I never paid for a drink, not a penny, because people would come up and pay for our drinks all the time. Gregory Yee Mark was a friend of Tom Tom's. He was a community organizer back then, and they knew each other from Tom Tom's days as an activist. Tom Tom was magnetic, and Gregory saw how people were drawn to him. He enjoyed being the Pied Piper, uh, walking around San Francisco Chinatown, and kids would come up and follow him. But politics around the watching got complicated, and the gang splintered. Members left and started other groups. From there, shootings and violence took off. One of the guys who left was Tom Tom. And one night, some watching guys found him in a restaurant. They beat Tom Tom so badly, he had to go to the hospital. It wasn't safe for him in San Francisco anymore. So he went to Oakland, and a new gang formed, the one my uncle would eventually join, the Soy Sing Boys. Gregory told me something about Tom Tom that proved he left a lasting impression on my uncle for years to come. I called him a look, or I called him six, but never to his face I would say crazy six, but I would just say six, and that was Tom Tom. Wait. And so Tom Tom. Crazy six is Tom Tom? Yeah. Wow. And I don't know what Galen wrote, but he was a real person. Crazy Six, the gang leader in my Uncle Galen's screenplay, what eventually became the title of the movie that got made, the character who forces Billy to murder his childhood friend. That was Tom Tom. Well, you know, Crazy Six, uh, he, he was named Six because he was the sixth child in the family. That's the tagline for the movie. Oh, my God. He he was crazy. I mean, he told me this uh I don't care what happens to me as long as I hurt the other guy more. Wow. And that's how he got the nickname Crazy. Because he would do things that were crazy in the streets. The more Gregory told me about Tom Tom, it started to make sense to me why my uncle would feel so drawn to him. In a lot of ways, Tom Tom was kind of the ultimate form of Sachyan, the Cantonese phrase my family used for Galen. My uncle wanted to act big, and Tom Tom was larger than life. He was power-hungry, money-hungry, and he exploited people. I did not like to see these young kids who were very impressionable at 15, 16, 17, and fall under the glamour of, oh, I'm one of Crazy Six Boys. Why did you join the story saying? Like, what interested you in being a part of that group. It was really the only family I had, just like modern-day gang members. Gordon Chu was one of Crazy Six's boys, along with Galen. He told me they and a lot of the Soy Sing boys bonded over not having dads in their lives. You know, they don't have a family life. Father was not around. And, you know, you just join the gang because of the camaraderie and just being part of a, a group. These days, he lives in a remote part of Colorado. He's had a lot of jobs over the years, and one of them was as a hairstylist. I started cutting hair at my mom's house when I was 15 years old, and 
there were several of the gang members. We'd come over to my house. We'd get together and start cutting their hair. We had a good time. And before you know it, I was full-timing it after work every day. Wow. Yeah, I, I do I remember this right? Did you cut my uncle's hair? Yes, all the time. I cut his hair. I fed him. He came over almost every night for dinner. I, I fed him. I, you know, I loved him as a friend. He was my best buddy. Gordon and Galen started hanging around TomTom in Oakland Chinatown. They were 18. TomTom was 25. Do you remember what he looked like? Oh, yeah. I can't forget that face. <laughs> you know the eyes of Charlie Manson, the, the, the murderer? He's got those eyes that look like he's bewildered, really bulging eyes that just can see right through you. That's what Crazy Six looked like. Was he, was he like a big guy? Was he small? What was no, his like stature like? None of the guys in our gang was big. We were a small gang compared to San Francisco watching. But the ferocity and the fearlessness was beyond what you could ever imagine. I mean, these guys were small, but let me tell you, they went all out, a thousand percent. Gordon remembered one story that a bunch of the guys told him. There was a naval station pretty close to Chinatown. And one time, some of the Soising boys had a run-in with a couple sailors who said a bunch of racist shit. And they just said, you fucking Chinamans, you know, and this and that. And that really ticked off the gangs. And they kidnapped them, took them up to the clubhouse, beat the living shit out of them, and then threw them back out in the street. And they were left for dead. I asked Gordon if my uncle was involved. He said he didn't know. I just know they were using two-by-fours, baseball bats, pipes, everything, just beating them to death. And they survived. The guys were alive, but they, they were probably in the hospital for two, three weeks after that. By this time, Gregory E. Mark was running a youth program in Oakland. And he used to hire TomTom Tom to do security at his fundraiser dances. One night, one of the San Francisco gangs showed up, and they were armed with rifles and guns. TomTom Tom usually carried a 38 revolver, but that night, his waistband was empty. And then TomTom, Tom, he goes out and he puts his hand behind his back, and he walks towards four or five of the guys. I remember his exact words as I was standing close by. And it's, uh, you motherfuckers, you want to die? And as he walked forward, they walked back. Because they thought he had the gun behind him. And he was bluffing them. And you're bluffing him with your life, too. I was scared. And I wasn't scared for myself. I was scared for the hundreds of people that were there who would be get caught in a crossfire. And one of the guys came up to me and said, don't worry, Greg, we'll be okay. We have guns too. It's at this point when the violence turned into a full-blown gang war. During the last four years in San Francisco, 19 young people, Chinese young people, were killed in what local police have called gang-related incidents. That murder scene in Galen's screenplay if it were real, I guess I thought of it as a one-time thing, 
not something that was part of this bigger war that involved a lot more murders. And the more I read, the more complicated it got. Because some of these murders are still unsolved. And in some cases, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, police suspected Tom Tom and his boys. I spent weeks reading about these murders. I kept reading and rereading the scene from my uncle's screenplay, looking for something that might match up. I talked to several former Sui Singh members. I requested police records from the SFPD. I wrote to the FBI and filed FOIA requests. I couldn't find any evidence that my uncle killed someone, but I also didn't find anything that proved that he didn't. In the end, I guess I knew more about the world Galen was living in, but I still didn't know exactly what he did in it. If Galen was here, he'd probably be mad or disappointed that his family would ever hear the extent of some of the things he did. Galen's childhood friend Edmund told me this story that took on new meaning once I'd learned about Tom Tom. It was this night Galen was hanging out with the Sui Sing boys at Edmund's mom's house. Galen, for some reason, took a gun and put it to my head. And it was loaded, you know, just as a joke. But, you know, and uh, this guy, Tom Tom, actually took the gun from Galen and put it to Galen's head and told Galen that he shouldn't be doing that to a friend. I saw the fear in Galen then. Why he did it, I don't know. You know, to show off in front of the other people there, he wanted to impress Tom Tom or what. He didn't impress Tom Tom. Yeah, instead it pissed him off. Right. Yeah. Were you, I feel like if I were in your situation, I would be at least glad that that guy... No, I was real, real happy. Yeah. That he, rever- you know, reversed the table. So there was a moment when Galen was in the same room as his childhood friend and Crazy Six, when Galen did put a loaded gun to his friend's head. But Crazy Six didn't make Galen do it. Instead, he was the one who stopped him. It makes me think... Unlike Galen's script, the real Crazy Six wasn't always the villain. And Galen wasn't always the hero he portrayed himself to be. Talking to Edmund, I remembered glimpses of my uncle I hadn't thought about since I was a kid. It was kind of like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Once he consumed some alcohol, it could be either real goofy and playful or he turned real red and violent. Wow. Yeah, I can't say that I'm, like, fully surprised because I feel like as a kid, I was always kind of, like... Maybe I'm projecting my... uh, Because I feel like I keep asking, like, were you scared? Were you nervous? Because I think that's probably how I felt sometimes around him. Like you said, like, he could be goofy at one moment and then another moment. Even as a child, he could, like, snap at me for no reason. Have you ever heard uh, the term Sachyung, like the Cantonese word? <clears throat> my family, I guess, used to use it for my Uncle Galen. It meant like 
cocky or like arrogant or like trying to act big. Right. I think that stemmed from insecurity, though. Yeah. You know, for one, because he's small in stature. Yeah. And the thing is, um, I think what he didn't realize is that it wasn't necessary for people to love him. You know, that he needed to portray this facade, you know, because I always cared about him like a big brother and I would do anything for him. Uh, at a certain time, if somebody were to threaten him, you know, I, I'd take it to the extent of uh, hurting them real bad, at, to say the least. Because he, you know, I knew the good side of him. I asked Edmund why he couldn't bring himself to speak at Galen's memorial. There's just so much, he said. Edmund told me it was just too hard to separate the good memories from the bad. And I'm starting to get what he means. A person could scare you, intimidate you, hurt you. But then you see just enough good to give them another chance. I would think that night with the gun would have been the last straw between Edmund and Galen, but I was wrong. I still continue to hang around Galen. Oh, wow. It wasn't until later uh, when he had this plan to extort a family, when Galen wanted me to get involved, with, go with him. That's when, when I cut Galen off. And soon after, he was arrested for extortion. Who is it? You know who I am? We don't. I'm the vice president of the Sui Singh. Next time on Magnificent Jerk, Galen gets caught. Can you open the door? I won't open it. Do you have no respect for me? Magnificent Jerk is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and hosted by me, Maya Lynn Sugarman. Our senior producers are James Kim and Eric Menel. Our producers are Melissa Akiko Slaughter and Maria Robbins Somerville. Our editors are Darby Maloney and Joel Lovell. Our senior engineers are Davy Sumner and Marina Pais. Mixing by Davy Sumner. Original music by Hannes Brown and Matthew Wong. Pineapple's head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Additional music courtesy of APM. Production assistance from Grace Chen, Himia Freeman, Gabe Kuwugale, Liz O'Malley, and Kristen Torres. Our cover art is by Joan Wong. Language and translation help from Judy Lay. It's All in the Game was written by Galen Ewan. The fiction and recreations in this episode are performed by Viet Huang, Jesse Kwai, Wei K. Yu, Patrick Ip, Andrew Allen Abadia, and Betsy Su. Special thanks to Auntie Esther, Auntie Joanne, Yo Wei Shaw, Stuart Sugarman, Doug Tochioka, 
Aaron Williams, and Brian Wong. James Kim and I are executive producers. The executive producers from Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>